the way I approach this, Jeff, is much more of an organic kind of process, right? So we have a conversation, we start talking, and if it morphs into like a podcast episode, it morphs into a podcast episode, it could just be like us catching up, right? And so the key is we record everything, and then we piece, the, or you piece together like a, a, a story, like a narrative, an arc. You know, that's your job, though. And so that you'll put in the, the, the beginning, you'll put in the end, you'll put in the beep, 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 you know, all that stuff. Is that still our jingle, by the way? I haven't listened to this podcast in years. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't listen either. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capelow. I am an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. What's going on, Jeff? How are you? I'm good. So, Marcus, uh, last time we talked on this podcast, we discussed Iran and their kind of newfound aggressiveness, maybe. We kind of talked about the, the overall risks of conflict in the Middle East and how if Iran really has changed its strategy to become a little more aggressive, that that dramatically increases the risk of a wider war, given what's going on between Israel and, and, the, and Gaza. Since our, our pod, we're always like very prescient in these podcasts. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a drone strike from an Iran-sponsored, supported group in Iraq on a U.S. military base. And uh, this, I think, has been seen as a bit of an escalation from Iran uh, toward the United States. And, and President Biden was quoted earlier this week, recording on Wednesday, January 31st. So uh, I think yesterday, President Biden was was asked, you know, what's going on with Iran. And he, and he said something like, I've decided what I'm going to do to respond. But he didn't say what that what that was. And today we've had some quotes from a speech by uh, an Iranian military leader saying, you know, we don't want war with the United States. Uh, and so, you know, the, the the risk of a retaliation here that leads to a wider conflict, um, I think, is is real. And I thought it's time for a check in on what we think the general risk is of a broader conflict in the Middle East now versus last week versus the week before. I mean, where do you where do you see this going? Do you think it's going to continue to escalate? Um, I think it's it's. To answer the, the direct question, it's worse than it was last week, precisely because of this uh, attack. I mean, what, what what strikes me is that Iran was, I guess, not pretty quick, but but quickly kind of came out to try to disassociate themselves uh, from this attack, right? So the the attack came from this like militant group who's like backed by Iran, is operating in Iraq, um, and so you know people sort of said, well, this is this is an Iranian attack. I don't think that's the right way to sort of like characterize it. I think it's it's right to say that this was a attacked by a militia group that has the backing of of Iran. Well, isn't that um, convenient for Iran that that's the way you interpret it? Well, it's not that convenient. Yeah. I mean, it's convenient for Iran that you don't consider this an attack by Iran. You consider this an attack by a militia group supported by Iran. Right. So I'm, I'm giving, in other words, I'm, I'm trying to give Iran like the benefit of the doubt here, right? That yeah. they were not, yeah. And, and to our, to, it connects to our discussion last week, right? Where you, both of us kind of agreed, I think, that we've, we both view Iran in, in similar sort of like defensive terms, right? In the sense that Iran looks out at its neighbors uh, and basically sees like lots of threats, right? And it sees the United States like, you know, sort of like omnipresent kind of in, in the region. And it doesn't like that. And it, and it has to project power and it has to, um, you know, try to try to show that it's not – what was the phrase last week? The missile, like we have our missiles too or whatever. The, the it's a missile power. Missile it's power. a missile power, right, exactly. So – so from you that vantage point, what I, I would say that I don't think Iran would want to be sort of associated 
with a drone attack of this type, right? Because that seems like it's purely escalatory. And I don't I don't see, again, this interpretation could be completely flawed and, and wrong, but if we're taking sort of like Iran's point of a word for it, the way I would interpret this is, this is a, something that happened sort of outside of their of their control maybe they knew you know in general terms of what was what was happening maybe you know they they sort of you know it didn't didn't stop it you know maybe they had the potential to do that whatever but the point is is like i don't think iran was trying to escalate a war in the middle east or the likelihood of a broader war in the middle east but that's exactly what happened and i think today we're we're more likely to see uh violent more violence in the region precisely because of this this attack uh, took place, but I'm just saying from like sort of intention perspective, it's not clear to me that Iran, uh, you know, really wanted this this to happen. And the fact that they came out relatively quickly and and tried to sort of walk back the idea that they were behind this and that they want they don't want to have an escalatory type of thing suggests to me that that my interpretation is right. Are you, are you reading this differently? I mean, I I think that's a very charitable interpretation. I mean, it, it may be the right interpretation, but it is. We don't know, and it's right. it's definitely the most charitable way of looking at this. I guess adding to your sense that this wasn't what Iran wanted to happen was the response by this military group today or yesterday saying, we won't be doing these kinds of attacks anymore very soon. Right, exactly. They didn't come out and say, like, okay, you know, that they, was just they didn't one say of They said, we won't be doing this anymore. And, you know, the, the kind of stated reason for this is pressure from Iran and Iraq to, to tone it down. Right. But, I, I mean, stepping back a little bit, this group and other groups associated with Iran, supported by Iran, with arms from Iran and money from Iran, and military guidance and intelligence provided by Iran, have been sending drones and missiles at U.S. and Israeli troops in the region for weeks. And just because, like, we're pretty good at shooting down drones, I mean, could, could Iran not have anticipated that something like this would have happened? And if so, shouldn't they have preemptively, if they really didn't want it to escalate, shouldn't they preemptively said to these groups, hey, stop shooting at the Americans because this could get out of control. All you need to do is get one drone through. But we have the Houthis firing off missiles all the time at U.S. forces in the Red Sea. We have Hezbollah firing at any target they can find, military groups in Syria and Iraq firing at U.S. installations there. So I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I understand that their response to this was, okay, let's not escalate. But shouldn't we look at their actions prior to this attack for clues about the intent? I think, Jeff, I'm, I'm approaching this uh, almost from a more normative perspective in the sense that I don't want Iran to have been responsible for this. Right. Like if, if we're trying to uh, analyze the situation in a way that we are not going to sort of scare the listener and like, you know, think that we're, we're on our way to a much broader uh, war in the Middle East. I very much want to believe that Iran uh, is doing what they they said, which is we don't intend this to be escalatory. We, you know, maybe they could have stopped it. Maybe they should have stopped, et cetera. But like given that it happened, what is the response? The response seems to be afterwards, like very much like trying to. Uh, go in the direction of like this wasn't like something that we we sort of intended. So I want that to be true. I agree with you 100. percent I am being very uh, uh, sympathetic to the Iranian uh, situation with with this interpretation. I totally totally agree. Um, but you know if if I'm if I'm Biden, right? And I think it matters quite a bit for the response, right? So if Biden is interpreting it the way like you are, and we're not that far apart here, like I think you're. 
you know, you're, you're more sort of pessimistic about this time, but you're not like suggesting, I don't think that Iran, like, you know, was sort of orchestrated a whole thing and it's going to continue to orchestrate similar attack. You're just saying like, we can't just be like, wash, you know, Iran's hands of it because they are ultimately are backing these groups. Um, and they might have complete control over them, but they are giving them the resources that ultimately allow them to do attacks like this. And so they share, they share the responsibility. They share the burden of like whatever these militias well, do. Once okay, you provide drones and missiles and support right. and money and intelligence to a group, then you are you're in bed there, man. Like you can't then say, oh, well, you know, we have no say over what they do. You facilitated what they did. So if you're going to hold someone responsible for those actions, it's not just the group; it's the backer. Yeah, I mean, in, in political science terms, I think we could think about this as like a principal agent problem, right? <laughs> Where where you lose, you do lose a little bit of um, autonomy and agency, right? It's sort of like once you once the relationship gets created and you have you know a, a group out there that you sort of delegate a, uh, uh, an overarching task to, responsibility to, how they go about that and what they actually do in terms of like the mechanics and the strategy is often kind of out of your control. Now, ultimately, your you know, Iran is in charge, right? So they can they can have you know, sort of interventions and things like that. But there is this problem in, in international politics where, like, you give a group uh, power or limited limited power and ask them to sort of support a cause. How they go about doing that is oftentimes sort of, like, up to them, right? And so I'm interpreting that as being, like, sort of Iran maybe did not want this to happen and they lost a little bit of control of the situation. But but nevertheless... But, but of, but of yeah, course, that's the one of the purposes of having a principal-agent relationship is sure. for Iran to be able to say... Hey, the Asian did it. We didn't do it. That's right. Right. And and right. so in order to combat that from the perspective of the rest of the world, you have to say, no, we're going to hold the principal responsible for the agent's actions. Right. And I, and I, right. And what, what I was going to go with this, though, is that I think I think ultimately what Biden is, is probably going to do is try to send some strong signal to Iran that we're doing exactly that. Right. You cannot be supporting uh, financially, resource-wise, whatever these these militias, and if something bad happens, just just pretend like you don't have any responsibility or control over it, right? So, in other words, my my point was that I think Biden is going to try to kind of be between the two of us. Maybe Iran intended this to happen, maybe they didn't. But at the end of the day, what they're what Biden needs to do is signal to Iran that you need to take more responsibility, you know, over these agents, and you need to be um, proactively making sure that we're not leading ourselves down a road where we're going to see a uh, wider conflict, how he accomplishes that, or if that's even accomplishable, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think that's the tactic he's going to take. So he's going to put responsibility on Iran, uh, kind of like you are, but I think do it in such a way where he's not, um, he's not going to approach this as if the Iranian military struck uh, these soldiers, right? Like this is, this is going to be a, a different uh, sort of response. I think. What do you think he's going to do? I don't know. I really don't know. It's it's shrouded in mystery, right? I mean, it, it's sort of like no one's no one that I've seen anyway. Maybe maybe stuff has come out in the last couple hours, but I haven't seen anybody like have any like good intel on exactly what what to expect. I don't know what he's going to do either, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw a U.S. military strike on one of these militant groups that was a little more uh, involved, uh, a little more extensive than what we've previously seen. Rather than a strike directly on Iran's military, I think for the reasons that you put forward that, that, you know, we don't want a war with Iran, Iran doesn't want a war with us. The message needs to be sent, however, that they can't just funnel money and arms to these groups and then uh, avoid all responsibility for it. So a strong strike against these groups 
coupled with a statement to Iran that, you know, n- next time we're involving you in this, mm-hmm. I think, I think is, makes sense. But, you know, it's a tough one because I think it is important for the United States to be clear with Iran that these proxy groups are, for all intents and purposes, Iranian action. And you, we don't want to send the message that Iran can get away with anything it wants as long as some other group was the one firing the missile that came from Iran. And and so I, it really is a tricky situation. Right. And it's also, I mean, it's it's sort of the nightmare situation that we've talked about before. Like it's when, when U.S. servicemen and women are killed, you know, in the in the Middle East uh, by an, an Iranian backed group. I mean, that is that if we had talked about this, you know, six months ago uh, and said, like, what are what are some of the things that that might lead to like a, a big conflict in the in the Middle East. I mean that is that is something that you would you would point to and say like an Iran backed attack killing U.S. servicemen. Yeah. So like and, and in a situation where it's already you know tensions are incredibly high, I think how the U.S. responds to this um, is going to be incredibly tricky because you're you've got to thread the needle where you're sending a strong enough signal to Iran to to knock it off with these these proxies and these uh, militant groups, but you don't want to do send such a strong signal that you're actually like engaging in war with Iran, because as you pointed out, we don't, we don't want that and they don't want that. Right. So I, I think you're right. The most likely response is something like some, some strike on a militant group uh, in Iraq or elsewhere or several militant groups. And, and, you know, saying to, to both the groups and to Iran, like this is we're not going to, we're not going to tolerate this. Right. But you know, it's like for for a while, the United States, um, I think that this war, before the three service uh, people died and were, were in the attack, you know, the United States was sort of providing support and um, trying to mediate and trying to find a diplomatic solution. We haven't talked about yet the sort of the thing that's kind of on the table, this idea of a truce, but they've been trying to broker something uh, in a way that wasn't, you know, sort of engaging in violence. But this this attack kind of changes that, right? It changes the tenor of U.S. involvement. Um, precisely because we now have, you know, service people who have died in the in the conflict. Um, and so I think that also, you know, for Biden uh, has to be something that, you know, changes his thinking about our what we're what the U.S. is doing uh, in the war itself. Yeah, I'm sure that one of the options given to the president was a direct strike on Iranian military targets and not not like a, you know, full on engagement. Right. But a limited strike. On, on Iranian military targets. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that the president would pursue that option as a way to send a stronger signal to Iran to back off. And, you know, maybe that's what's required to get that signal out. Because right now, many of the combatants in this in this conflict are Iranian proxies. And so if there was a message that could be sent to Iran to say, stop, that would be really useful in trying to resolve this conflict sooner rather than later. Marcus, I was in a couple of meetings in the last couple of weeks with policy types, and it was kind of an interesting theme that emerged from, from some of these talks that I, I thought I would throw out there and see if you had any thoughts on. In these meetings, the subject matter was all over the place, but we kept coming back to kind of this theme of how do we, how do we the United States, U.S. people, how, how do we make progress on achieving some of our international security goals in the world in cooperation with others in a world that seems to be arrayed against the prospect of cooperation. So there are things that 
we can see how a cooperation would work in arms control, in limiting the military uses of AI, in restricting development in, of bioagents, in dealing with global health issues, it, all of these things. We can see pathways for cooperation. But because the relationships between these countries are so fraught between the main countries that would be involved in these things, the U.S., Russia, China, primarily, because the relationships are so fraught, there doesn't seem to be a pathway to achieve even things that everyone would kind of in principle agree to. And so the discussion kind of came back a couple of times to this question of like, like, what can we do? How can we cooperate in a world that looks like this, where there's maybe a new Cold War, where everyone's an enemy with everybody else. And even the things that we used to be able to do together don't seem possible. And I, I, we, there were some interesting ideas that kind of came up in, in these meetings, but I thought I would throw it over to you and see, you know, when we were talking about the big risks in the world, one of the things you talked about was the lack of cooperation generally. And I think that that's right, but it's not enough to just, you know, name the problem. What do we, what do we do? What can be done about our lack of cooperation in the world? Well, Jeff, unfortunately, I don't have um, a lot of great answers. I'm not sure anybody does, although I'd be curious after I give you my couple of thoughts, what the, the folks had to say that in these meetings. But it strikes me that there are two different things you can think about. One would be um, areas in which there are common interests, but it might be the case that they're not particularly framed in, in a way that uh, – all sides kind of see it as their their common interest, right? So I think there were you know some areas where we think about like global health, we think about um, maybe climate change, although that's that's fraught with with politics, um, terrorism. You know, there are some areas I think where there is there is sort of low, relatively low hanging fruit for even the United States, Russia, and China to uh, cooperate on. So I think like you could find areas in global health, let's say, where even China would have an interest in um, putting in maybe safeguards for future pandemics or, you know, policies and procedures for vaccine delivery in the future, like lessons learned from COVID, like that kind of stuff. I, I think that that's an area where you might be able to get some um, some traction in terms of, of developing a better relationship. But the key, it seems to me, is like finding where the areas of common interest are and conveying to all of the parties that these are, in fact, your interests. Like, so China might not be thinking to itself at the moment, global health uh, is, a, is a priority. It might be that the Biden administration is not thinking to itself that global health is a priority, right? So it's convincing actors um, that there is this sort of cooperation potential. They just have to, to sort of see it from a particular vantage point. And to do that, traditionally, you know, you've, you've used things like track two diplomacy, track 1.5 diplomacy, like you bring together... Um, practitioners, policymakers, academics, diplomats, et cetera, NGOs, to try to, you know, find areas of, of you know, cooperation and then eventually try to get to the point where you can convince your, your uh, state to adopt these, these types of, of uh, policies. So I think one area would be sort of focusing on areas of common interest. The other thought that I have, and this is, this is a little bit more um, sort of theoretical in nature, but I think it's, it's important. It's to think about other periods of time uh, where something like this happened, right? And I know, I know you love history. And so the one that I want to talk about, and we've talked about it before on the pod, I think a couple of years ago, is the Concert of Europe, right? Concert of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, all these states in, in Europe are basically fighting. Um, there's rivalries, there's intense conflict, and they come together and they, they say, look, we need to figure out a way where we can 
cooperate, even though there are conditions that are making it very difficult uh, to do so. And they create basically a system where they're going to they're going to have regular interactions and they're going to have representatives uh, kind of like a United Nations, but but different because it's it's you know really very much about sort of like the great powers and, and you know, regular sort of routinized interaction. And you sort of agree to some common principles and, and uh, you agree to have, you know, sort of discussions and consultations uh, regardless of what's going on in the world. Right. Because it, it strikes me that like one of the big problems that the United States and Russia and China have is that there are very few sort of fora to actually like have meaningful diplomatic interaction. Like there's just not that many opportunities to have actual uh, sort of discussion and, and conversation. So I think we, it's sort of like, instead of retreating and moving away from uh, interaction, we need to be creating more of it, right? So I would be a proponent of rethinking about, like, how do we create the concert of Europe in 2024? Like, what are the things that we need to do um, to get more cooperation happening? And one of the first things you could you could do was create a structure where you have sort of regular kind of meetings, regular congresses where not every country in the world is going to is going to come, but but Russia, the United States and China will be there. They will send representatives. You will have have discussion, right? That's a very different model than than what we've been talking about in the United States anyway with with the Biden administration. Remember he was talking about like this alliance of democracies or whatever. It's like we're going to we're going to talk with the countries that we already kind of agree with. Seems to me like that's not that's not the solution here, right? You need to be talking to the countries that you don't agree with. Uh, and so creating some type of Congress system where we're going to have regular routinized interaction with uh, China and Russia, I think, um, is one sort of theoretical way of doing it. The theoretical part is that you need to convince China and Russia to join it, right? So I don't know what the incentive would be at the moment for Russia, for example, to participate in these conversations or even for China to participate in these conversations. Um, but I do think that that is one sort of potential way of thinking about this is where have there been cases of bad things in the international system happening where it looked like cooperation was impossible and yet we saw cooperation anyway i think early 19th century europe is actually one uh, potential model i like that idea you know one of the things you can do to break this problem down is think about what is it that's preventing progress on some of these issue areas and and just to be to be clear i mean we we have a lot of challenges in the world that these countries legitimately see differently, that they feel their their interests are not aligned. What we want, China wants the opposite, right? There are a lot of a lot of issues like that. But there are some issues where we actually do agree, where we actually could agree if only we could get past the breakdown of the relationship generally. And those are the ones that I think are the you know, the most promising, obviously, because the our incentives really are aligned. If only we could get over ourselves and, and make progress on these things. But one way to address these problems is think, well, what's preventing us from actually taking action on those things, on the things we actually do kind of fundamentally agree on? And I think there are a few of these challenges and barriers. One of them is kind of the transactional nature of international politics. Let's imagine a world where both China and the U.S. would agree on some some measures to prevent unintentional escalation through AI, through some use of technology, right? That they could work together to stop this. Well, China might say, okay, but the U.S. wants to do this. So we should get something from the U.S. so that we can participate. Mm -hmm. You can use the fact that the other country also wants something 
as a way to get something. So the fact that the U.S. values it means that it has value as a transactional thing. And there's no reason that China should agree to anything without getting something else, right? Like, you know, something to do with international trade or something to do with Taiwan or whatever. So, you know, there's that kind of category of the transactional nature of things. There's also um, an emphasis sometimes on relative gains that, okay, the U.S. and China would both benefit, but China would benefit more. So therefore, the U.S. won't do it because our calculus about international strength, power, international relations generally is based on trying to make sure that China doesn't benefit more than we do from some other thing. And so you can imagine a number of steps with things like climate change or other areas where you would think everybody would agree, but some country doesn't because it's going to be too good for their enemy. Okay. And then there's the issue of the joy of backing out of an agreement, I guess. Like the feeling of the, the psychological so, benefit of backing out. I like right, that should be exactly. paper. We should write that. That's we good. We should write that. Like countries have sometimes in these fraught relationships have so few levers to pull to signal their displeasure with their adversary that bailing on something becomes like all they can do. Even if staying in the agreement or staying in the in the conversation would be good for everyone. So we see this over and over again. We've talked about it before, certainly on this podcast, like refusing to answer the call from mil in military to military contacts. So remember the spy balloon, right? The U.S. Defense Secretary tries to give a call to China's defense minister. They refuse to answer the phone. Why? Everyone benefits from those discussions. Well, China is trying to signal their displeasure with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan by cutting off some of these relations. And they don't have many ways to signal that displeasure. So they picked the one they had, which is, well, we're not going to answer the phone for military to military con contact, even though that really benefits both parties. So these three big barriers really prevent progress that might otherwise have happened if only the countries could move around them. So how do we get around them? And I think you raised a couple of good ideas. I like the idea of finding routinized forums Routinized fora for countries to just have repeated interactions. The nice thing about doing that is that it reduces the like the inherent value of it. Like if you're always in the room with the Russians, then you know it's not like a big meeting. If you bail in a big meeting, you get maybe some way of signaling your displeasure. But if you're just always there, then it kind of takes away from the transactional nature of things. You you get less for doing it, and that's actually a benefit in in these in this kind of scenario. I like that you mentioned track one and a half and track two interactions. So for those not down with the diplomacy lingo, track one and a half means you are having talks. The people having talks are government officials, but they're operating in their unofficial capacity. That means they're not making a deal that's going to be sent to Congress to approve. They're not actually negotiating. They're just kind of having discussions so that these relationships can be built but they're not really representing their government at that time. And then track two negotiations are discussions between parties that are not currently in government, but who speak generally for their country. So sometimes academics participate in track two discussions or former government officials very often will participate in these discussions. And the nice things about those kinds of discussions is that that kind of takes off the table a lot of the transaction stuff, a lot of the relative gain stuff, a lot of the joy of backing out of things. None of that really applies to track one and a half or two discussions because they're off the radar anyway, right? So it's just a chance to kind of build up a relationship. And so that, I think, is a, a promising path forward. And, and those discussions fit into 
kind of a general category of things that I think are the most promising way forward, even if it's not, I'm not particularly optimistic about that way forward. And that's something we used to call confidence building measures, CBMs, or confidence and security building measures, CSBMs. And these uh, are measures that countries take specifically to build up relationships that can then be cashed in in the future for some actual gain, uh, right? Some actual diplomacy. But the confidence building measure itself is not for diplomacy. It's for preventing escalation and for building up relationships and sometimes building momentum for future talks. And so the I, I like that you used a historical analogy here. The analogy I used in, in some of these discussions uh, that I had recently is we don't want necessarily a, a non-proliferation treaty to deal with the AI, to deal with this kind of security threat on the horizon. That's too much. It's not going to work. No one's going to agree to it. What we want instead is another analogy from the Cold War from nuclear relations, which is nuclear risk reduction. This idea that countries can get in a room and agree what we don't want to happen is for us to shoot nuclear weapons at each other unintentionally. We can all agree on that. So how do we work toward that outcome, which is much lower hanging fruit? And the way forward is these confidence building measures, CBMs. And there are dozens and dozens of examples from the Cold War where countries like the United States and the Soviet Union and later India and Pakistan and, and North Korea and South Korea, uh, countries that are potentially at risk of conflict, can work together to establish some mechanisms that will make conflict less likely in the long run. Those include things like hotlines. We've talked about a lot in the past. Military to military connections. Risk reduction centers is a big thing from the Cold War where there would be kind of an institution established with the idea that you're just sharing information about potential missile stuff with your adversary so that no one gets confused about what's going on. Um, these track two and track one and a half diplomacy measures, those are also a form of confidence building measure. Even just having exchanges where military folks from China and military folks in the U.S. meet up in Bali, you know, uh, for, for <laughs> they're not it's not an official meeting. They just happen to be in Bali and they kind of are at the same hotel and they happen to run into each other in the hallway. And so now, you know, who your counterpart is on the other side of this conflict and you're better able to reach out to them in the future when things when things get tough. So there's a whole category of these things that I think maybe is a way forward, although, again, not tremendously optimistic given the, the state of these relationships. I like that list, Jeff. Um, I think that there are – there's a couple different uh, things I want to add to the discussion. Again, like on the menu of things that, you know, are uh, might be possible um, in terms of thinking about how to improve things. During the Cold War, um, there was a uh, sort of perspective by uh, the psychologist Charles Osgood in uh, 1962 – came out with this sort of like framework called GRIT, uh, Graduated and Reciprocated Initiatives and Tension Reduction. And what was interesting about this, and it, it, it never really got implemented in like a full-fledged way, but what was interesting about this perspective was he was trying to um, kind of deal with the so-called first mover problem. One of the things that that might characterize the situation that we find ourselves in now between you know the United States, Russia, and China, let's say, is that no one is really sort of incentivized to make the first kind of cooperative gesture. And so what, what Oswood said you need to do is like, you can have confidence building measures and stuff like that, but those are fundamentally like cooperative in, to begin with. Like you have to like get to the point where you agree to have a confidence building measure. You need to agree to go to a conference. You need to agree to go to Bali, whatever. The, the grit perspective is you don't have to agree to, to anything. What you do if you're the United States is you come out and you publicly say, look, um, 
we want to improve relations with China. We think that this is a bad uh, relationship that we're in. Our goal is to try to put in policies that are going to make our relationship with China uh, better. And then you do something unilaterally. Um, you do something positive. You do something that you think is going to be a very small but significant enough that it will be perceived by China as something that you're doing to reduce uh, tensions, right? So you take you you take something that, and it's hard to come up with a specific example of what this might be, but we could we could you know sort of brainstorm. But you do something that's sort of like unilaterally just like a a, a public good uh, from 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 the United States, and you hope that it's reciprocated. But it doesn't have to be. If it's not reciprocated, you know what you do? You do another one, right? And you do enough of these so that over time, China starts to, to realize, like, what you're doing is not a trick. What you're doing is not trying to, you know, get anything in return. You're actually doing what you said you were doing publicly, which is trying to build a better relationship with, with China. And the steps need to be sort of um, gradual in nature. So you do something small, then you do, the next day you do something like a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And the hope is that eventually the adversary will see what you're doing and reciprocate in some way. So Osgood's sort of idea is don't be deterred or dismayed if your initial gesture or your first couple of gestures don't, don't pan out. Uh, that's okay. You are solving the first mover problem by being the one that's going to take unilateral kind of cooperative action. Now, part of the issue with this sort of theory has always been that it's very difficult. Uh, and this is this is true of like kind of any signaling uh, story that, that you tell in international relations. But China is, is probably predisposed to see anything that the United States does from a from a you know, sort of conciliatory gesture perspective as being a trick, as being a ruse or or just being simply irrelevant. Right. Because they're going to say potentially. Biden, that's great that you uh, move these troops out of the, the you know, South China Sea or whatever. I'm just making something up. That's great that you're doing that. We don't see that as fundamentally sort of trust building. We see that as something else. We see that as either meaningless or we see this as, sub, you know, something that you're, you're trying to do to trick us. So you have to be prepared to do something in addition to what you've already done, which is very difficult to do, right? Because, because people want results and they want to see, the American public wants to see, you know, Biden's strategy of engaging with China be a success. So you, you can't be deterred. You have to continue to, to do these things to the point where China realizes like this is, this is for real, right? So I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. Uh, it was one of the things that was proposed during the Cold War in a very similar time where there was, you know, a lot of animosity between uh, great powers, and it does kind of solve that that first mover issue. The only other thing I want to add to your your discussion of the diplomacy stuff and the the regular congresses and the track one point five or track two point you know the, the the tricky thing there has always been sort of the you know we talk about sometimes it's like the aggregation problem right it's like if I go and i and I have a a meeting in the Marriott conference room with retired policymakers from China and the U.S. And we go through these like war games and we, we have negotiations and we come to a better understanding of what's going on. Those people in that room may, might have changed and they might have realized, like, oh, actually, you know, my, my views have, have altered slightly. The question has always been and the challenge has always been, how do you continue to build upon those interactions in such a way that it sort of like, you know, proliferates into the higher levels of, of decision-making, right? And that's, that's always a huge challenge when um, it's, it's relatively easier to get retired policymakers and academics to kind of like get into a room and sort of, sort of agree to something and change their minds uh, potentially. Much harder to see how you can get the higher level folks to, to accomplish the same thing, right? I think it has to rely on this kind of vague notion that we've talked about before that speaks to all kinds of 
aspects of diplomacy, like sports diplomacy, like people that I was just going to say, there's baseball diplomacy all over pe- again. Baseball Marcus. diplomacy, people to people exchanges. It's all <laughs> kind of premised on this notion that something happens on uh, when you have these lower level interactions occurring that that through mechanisms that are poorly understood, you know, sort of bubble up sometimes, sometimes not into, you know, better relations more generally, or put more specifically leaders kind of adopting different policies and views of, of the other. Um, it's true of sports. It's true of track 1.5, 2.0 diplomacy, right? And so like, how do we get to the point, you know, theoretically or empirically where we can show that these types of, of meetings, these types of, of routinized engagements at lower levels are doing anything at the, at the higher level, right? I don't have I don't have an answer. We've talked about this before. I don't think anybody has a great answer to that. But it's it seems like the only the only plausible path forward for kind of reducing uh, tensions has to rely on this poorly understood but probably there mechanism of going from lower levels to higher levels. Yeah, I, I was going to make the same the same point, which is that you can list out all these confidence building measures. Talk about track one, track two, or track one and a half, track two. Track one, by the way, just for completeness, is official <laughs> diplomacy. You, you can lay out, list out all these things, but whether there are any results from any of this is is questionable. And what empirical work there is on this is limited and, I think, not particularly convincing. And for a while there, I actually had a project looking at confidence-building measures and trying to find some measurable result from confidence building measures but it's not the kind of thing that is easy to look at and say oh here's where this mattered yep and i i've been part of track one and a half and track two talks before in the past a number of times and i think the general sense of people involved in them is that oh this is really useful right, right? like we're, we're if you ask people who do these things and you know when i was doing them i probably would have said the same thing you're at the table, you're talking to their counterparts, you're making progress, you're sharing your views, you have a better understanding of their views, they have a better understanding of your views, and you, and you go, you take a survey on the way out because everyone, everyone's trying to, trying to measure this stuff, and the survey says, you know, did you find this useful? You say, yes, yes, I did, right? This is, this is useful. But then a year later or whatever, when something, some issue comes up and you're back in your job as a deputy assistant secretary of defense or whatever, and you're faced with a, a particular crisis, turning that track one and a half or track two talk into a better outcome for this crisis, that's where things are really tricky. And often we rely on this idea that, well, you now know your counterparts better in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's kind of the prevailing argument among track one and a half track two people is that okay well now when there's a crisis i know the person on the other side of this crisis is general what's his name Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna call her up when we have this crisis and say hey you know let's deal with this like the friends we were in bali right when we had that drink that time and on the margins of a track one and a half talk and i don't think that happens very often honestly like i i think that those it's nice to know who your counterpart is, but turning that into a direct connection between your counterparts is very difficult in the context of a crisis because that's often not the time you're reaching out at the working level. So I, I don't know. I, I think it remains this is an area where we don't have good empirical results. I think there's reason to be skeptical that this stuff works, but it is the kind of thing that can be done in a world where cooperation is not something that's valued by the great powers. Yeah, and I, and I think the other way to think about it is, I mean, empirically, right, it's hard to draw a causal arrow between any 
any of these meetings and any type of like outcome that that political scientists would you know kind of care about. Um, on the other hand, you could just you know run run counterfactuals and say, well, in, in the absence of these types of meetings, like what would, would we expect to see the same level of of tension, or would things be worse, or would they be better? And I think most most people would probably say, well, the counterfactual would be, I would think that things would be, you know, certainly not worse. Uh, sorry, certainly not better if we didn't have these confidence building measures, you know, and potentially worse or maybe maybe the same. Right. But like, I think mo- most people sort of say, like, they're probably not hurting. Uh, and right. if anything, they're probably moving the needle like a little bit in the direction of, of more peace. There are some examples. I mean, you're you're a Iran uh, nuclear guy. I mean, that that is one I remember in the in the sort of lead up to the diplomacy that eventually got to the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, there were lots of track 1.5 and track two uh, events and meetings kind of in the lead up to that. Right now you might, you might say, well, yeah, sure. Uh, doesn't mean that that they were responsible for the JCPOA. I mean, right. is- That's a big problem though, Marcus, is yeah. because when you have a situation where the relationship between the countries is thawing sufficiently for there to be direct talks, what you get first are the track one and a half talks because like now it's okay to do that. We can now have these unofficial contacts, but it's not clear that that's causing anything. It's more likely to be a, an effect of the general thawing of relations. So I, I I think it's really hard to draw a line from unofficial talks to progress on the JCPO. In in political science, we might term this endogeneity, right? So like we have a situation where how did it even become possible for talks to begin with uh, Iran for a nuclear uh, deal or track 1.5 or 2.0, it seems to be like th- conditions had to have thawed to even allow those those talks to begin with in the first place, right? So I, I I agree with you, but I'm trying to like find the most sympathetic again. I'm Mr. Sympathy today, right? So like, what are what are sort of like the best examples we have where we could draw something of an arrow between some track 1.5 or 2.0 diplomacy and some and some outcome? I think that is one that some people might point to and say, okay, there's some evidence maybe. If we squint hard enough, that we can find that you know sure. there was there was reliance on this or this help build up uh, uh, something. You know, there's other. Uh, you know, there there have been lots of different um, 1.5 or 2.0 uh, meetings and and processes with North Koreans, South Koreans, the United States. Oftentimes, these are sort of like you know North Korean officials who are not in official capacity, but they're still like kind of in a semi-official capacity, or they're doing things maybe. You know, the North Koreans are aware of, but they're not, you know, necessarily have full autonomy to say whatever that. But the idea there is that at least you're having in a a world where or a region where there's so little interaction, like anything is seen as better than than the alternative, which is like just nothing. Right. And by the way, just, you know, last week, the North Koreans came out and basically said any talk of reunification with South Korea, uh, we're going to shut that down. That's not happening. You know, basically being a little bit more aggressive uh, towards South Korea. So they tore down the reunion, the unification arch. I did know. you see that? I did see that. It's, I mean, that's, it's just sad. But so, like, again, right? Like, this is our theme today of sort of, like, things happening, like, in the international just a world of bad things happening. Let's add this to the list. Um, but he, even here, right, it's like you, you could say, like, well, you know, surely having some discussion, some interaction, some contact uh, between the three sides, in this case, South Korea, North Korea, and the United States, um, is surely better than than not having it, right? But unfortunately, like, this is just... This is about as far as we can push it, you know? It's like we empirically, like, it's just really, it's a really thorny kind of problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, though, that it's better to have talks than not have talks, even if even if those are unofficial. Right, and I can't tell you exactly why I feel that way. 
right? Because like if I don't have a theory of how that aggregates, it's not obvious that I should believe that, right? Like if I I can't tell you why it's good to have these talks unless I can make some claim about it having an effect in the world, right? So it's interesting. So we both intuitively, it's it's like we have a folk theory about how international politics works. Um, but what we don't have is like a scientific causal understanding of that process. I, I think that I, that in itself, I think is kind of interesting that two experts, two experts, Jeff. Yeah. It's a little, as the scientist in this group, it's, it's a little <laughs> depressing to me um, that we, <laughs> we don't have. Right. No, but I just, I, what I appreciate in this conversation is that you and I have the same intuition. Like we both disagree. We disagree on lots of things, but here we both have this intuition that these things actually matter yet. We can't tell you why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure they matter, but I think they are unlikely to do much damage is what, is, is what I've, well, what that's I'm a saying. ringing, that's a ringing endorsement for, uh, yeah. I mean, the, 1. The, you know, that we talked about this so many times, like that, just being able to have military to military contacts in order to deescalate in, in a conflict. Sure. I mean, that seems like that ought to be a good thing, right? But it's very hard to point to a particular situation in which that saved the day. Yeah. But yeah, that seems like it should be a good thing. And, and so the official view of the cheap talk podcast is that those things are good. Can I ask you one last thing before we, we quit? Uh, oh, I didn't want to shut down the conversation, but I yeah. assume we're kind of getting towards the end here. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you think about the North Korean um, sort of ending, not, not ending, but for the time being anyway, kind of putting a halt on reunification and, um, you know, sort of a depressing, in a world of depressing events, I think this was just kind of another sad moment where the North Koreans basically came out and said, like, anybody who's thinking that one day... South Korea and North Korea are going to be reunited. Uh, forget about it. And then, as you noted, they tore down the sort of symbol of that reunification. Like, what, 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 is your, what is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody thought that South Korea and North Korea were going to be united under this government, under this North Korean leadership. And so I, I, that, that wasn't really it, – it is sad. I, I don't want to diminish the, the meaning of this statement by North Korea, which has always uh, – has always stood by the idea that North Korea and South Korea would be unified in the future. Yeah, that was always the, the end goal. We're working to unification. Now, the South Korean view of unification is very different than the North Korean view of unification. But I think a, a realistic view of this was that the Kim Jong-un government was never going to unify with South Korea in a way that would have been acceptable to South Korea, right? Like the way that would have happened was after a war uh, or something like that. So the practical value of this stuff is was low right but symbolically it's depressing they had this this big arch or the unification arch that had been built uh to like represent the hope of unification in the future and they tore it down along with this statement saying we're never going to unify and uh this is kind of coupled with a general shift in North Korean rhetoric, which is much more aggressive towards South Korea than it has been. So just over the last year, things have gotten significantly worse, I think, in terms of the way North, maybe two years, the way North Korea is talking about South Korea just in, in statements and stuff. It's, it's this, you know, they've always been the enemy, but it's been stronger. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a bad sign. But just like with the mill-to-mill talks, communication, and these other confidence-building agreements in the U.S.-China or U.S.-Russia context, there are very few things that are left for North Korea to do to signal its displeasure. Send another missile over there, test launch another missile. It can cause problems on the margins, but this is a non-escalatory statement that it can do. This is a thing it can do that is unlikely to lead to military action with South Korea because it's tearing down a building that's in North Korea, but uh, it still signals North Korea's 
displeasure about the, the status quo. And I think that as long as there are these things that they can find to do to make a statement, to send a signal, we are unhappy with how things are going, you know, North Korea is going to continue pulling those levers until it runs out. It's basically run out. And so the last things left are this kind of prospects for future reunification and, uh, you know, the unification arch. And so they're the latest victims of the search for ways to send a signal to South Korea and the international community that things are bad. Things are bad in this region. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree uh, basically with everything you said. I'll add just a couple of, of points. I mean, I think one reason why it's a little bit scary to me, and, and I think it's it's important that, um, you know, analysts are looking at sort of material changes in North Korea's like sort of military posture to determine whether or not we think that any, any you know, Kim is like serious about any type of like attack on South Korea anytime soon. Um, so we can't like overreact to, to what's going on. But it does strike me that, you know, from a sort of ideational, like if we're taking a, a, this perspective, uh, more of like a sort of constructivist perspective, sort of like that ideas matter. The idea that you're designated, um, you're designating South Korea kind of like formally like as uh, the enemy as opposed to like the like one, like the idea if we, if reunification is an idea that's out there, that implies that North Korea kind of views South Korea as like an entity with whom it would one day maybe want to be like reunited with, like bring bring the, the peninsula back as a whole, the family's like reunited, all that kind of stuff. By formally kind of saying like, no, 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 that's not the case. These guys are the enemy. Reunification is not going to happen. You, you, I think you are sort of ideationally kind of making it more likely that you are then um, – viewing yourself as justified in attacking the enemy, right? So if it was the case that you, let's, in a hypothetical world, you know, North Korea is planning to do something militarily against South Korea, it seems like one of the things you would want to do is establish rhetorically, ideationally, that South Korea is the enemy. Like, they're not, they're not part of us. They're not, we're not reunited. They're, they're bad. They're, they're, they're somebody that needs to be dealt with as you would deal with any enemy, right? And so just from like a kind of thought perspective, an ideational perspective, I think it was, it was sad and also scary uh, to kind of see this this happen now, of course, as you pointed out, like there's, the rhetoric has been all over the map with North Korea towards South Korea for you know a long time. This is not the first time, certainly, that the rhetoric has gotten heated, um, and so hopefully, it just stays at the rhetoric level. But we we simply don't know. Um, the other thought that I had though was was whether or not, and this gets back to our discussion earlier about the importance of sort of interaction. I think some analysts are pointing to the so-called, you know, sort of trilateral alliance that's kind of emerged between the United States, South Korea, and Japan as being something that really irritates North Korea, right? Because they look out and they say, you know, the United States trying to basically, um, well, not not trying to, gobbling up sort of like every other uh, sort of country in the region and align them against, uh, you know, North Korea as this like block of power. Like it's like a sort of, you know, we have this this control over over the region now. And North Korea not being sort of part of any type of, of discussion or formal, even if it, it, formal or informal sort of like negotiation or party to any type of, of uh, discussion, I think irritates them. And I think that they, it, it, if you want to look at it charitably, it scares them. But I think it, if nothing else, it just sort of shows that they're not happy with this, this arrangement. So again, to the importance of not just talking to the countries with whom you agree um, and sort of like having, you know, sort of good making better relations with that, you know, uh, with countries that you already have good relations with this points, I think, to the important and the importance of engaging with countries that you don't have great relations with. And maybe that's through a Congress system or something else. But I do think one interpretation of, of the rhetoric change is a signaling displeasure with the sort of way that the alliance has kind of formulated under the Biden administration and, and been sort of strengthened recently 
with the summit that they had at Camp David and, and so on. So again, all all negative stuff, not good. Um, but I'm I'm not going to overreact necessarily to what North Korea is doing. Uh, Marcus, I think we should leave it there. It's been a pleasure, Jeff, as always. Yeah, thank you for for joining me. I I hope everyone listening will subscribe to this podcast in your podcast player of choice. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. I use Overcast. Marcus, what's your podcast player of choice? I don't really have one. I don't listen to podcasts. I create them, but I don't I don't listen to podcasts. Yeah. Who has time right. to listen to podcasts? I mean, who, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a busy person. I don't have time to listen to podcasts. I mean, all everyone listening right now has time to listen to podcasts. So let's hmm. not let's not be too harsh. I guess there is a yeah, there, there's sort of like an uh, inconsistency in my thought process there. Yeah. Well, subscribe in your podcast player that, that you like. That way you'll be notified of any new episodes and you won't miss any. Please also leave us a review if you, if you like the podcast. We appreciate those. It helps other people find the podcast. You can leave us a message, a voicemail, or send us an email. Um, we are at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk and uh, leave us a message. Let us know what we should be talking about where Professor Holmes was wrong about something or provide just general comments. We appreciate all of that. Uh, go to cheaptalk.shop to view our items for sale. We have some t-shirts. We have a hoodie. We have a really nice mug, a sticker set. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the people listening are looking right now at a laptop computer in front of them. And the back of that laptop is just bare. It's got no stickers on it Boring. at all. And that's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing for you. So what would look better on the back of your laptop than a Cheap Talk sticker. I'm not sure I can think of anything. So go check those out at cheaptalk.shop and help support the podcast that way. Marcus, thanks so much. Thank you, Jeff. We'll see everybody next week. You recovered from the the big lines game last weekend? Uh, I felt bad for you. Um, And and unfortunately, it never got to the point where we could really like test our theories about going for two. And, you know, just it it was it was. Well, we can test my theory about kicking a field goal when on fourth down when you're in field goal range. That's true. Which is which is kick the field goal. That's my you you always you always take the points. You take the points. But the thing is, is that I uh, games like that are just devastating. For, for if you're a Lions fan, if you're a San Francisco fan, it's great. Like this was like you know uh, when the Patriots were down with the Falcons, like twenty eight right. to three. Like it was right. a very similar kind of like situation. So these games are just terrible for the team who loses because you go into halftime feeling so good. Right. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a pessimistic sports fan, so I always kind of think like, okay, there's no way my team is going to play that well, or the other team's going to play this. Oh, I poorly. knew we were going to blow it like a hundred percent at halftime, and I was texting everyone like that was a great half. Turn it off. You know, the the real lions are going to come back out at the end of at the end of the half. And uh, I have to admit, like there was that kind of feeling. You yeah. know, you kind of felt like this was going to happen. Uh, but it's just a, it's it's really crappy way to lose. Like I would I would rather have my team get blown out from the beginning uh, than have like this hope uh, that comes about because your team played really well in the first half, but then just kind of blows it. Now, to be, now let's be fair. Like you know, the, the lions did not play as well in the second half as they did in the first half. That's true. San Francisco played much better in the second half. Like then, so it's like you know, you got to also give credit where credit's due. Like San Francisco, like made adjustments. They figured out you know uh, their offense <laughs> in the second half, and you know it's, it's and just they like, got lucky a couple and then, uh, and a then couple of very lucky plays. I would like to point out catching a ball off of an opponent's face mask, like bounces off the face mask, popped up into the air. That was yeah. like a, a a really tough play, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Those, but you know, like it's funny how in the playoffs and, and Super Bowls often like these weird things, you know, do kind of happen like this because the teams are good. You know, the players are excellent and like they do pull things just out of the fire every once in a while, like these crazy catches and, and yeah. you know, catching the ball against your your helmet or whatever. So I, I also have to say in the first game, I was I was disappointed. Like I, I'm not a I don't I don't really like the the Ravens or the Chiefs, but I was just so frustrated by the way that the Ravens played and the, the dopey penalties and just, you know, just the taunting calls. And, you know, that that aggravated me because you're in a, a AFC championship game. You know, you gotta you gotta have a your wits about you. You know, you have to like realize like I can't I can't take a fifteen yard <laughs> taunting penalty here. You know, and and blow my team's chances. So I was frustrated by that game, and then it, you know the second game it was obviously you know worse. But yeah, tough game, bud. Tough game. Yeah, there's always next year. And, but and here's here's the thing for if you're gonna look at this from a, a positive perspective, like the trajectory of this team. Like they went out and built, like basically redo a rebuilding project a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. And I would say far exceeding expectations about where they would be, you know, in twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four, right? So like that's the good news. Like the trajectory seems to be like very positive. It doesn't seem to be changing. Anytime yeah, soon. I'm optimistic about the Lions' future. Yeah, I think uh, I think this was a, a good run, but I hope that there'll be more more yeah. good runs in 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 the next couple of years. Yesterday, Jeff, uh, we were watching um, some old Simpsons episodes, and we might have co- covered this on the pod before. I don't, I can't recall. But one of my favorite episodes is uh, Bart versus Australia. Yeah, where, where Bart uh, gets in trouble because he made a click call to a, a, a child in Australia who didn't know what he was doing, and basically the, the 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 Simpsons family has to go to Australia to like apologize, and they go to the embassy. And they ask, like, which way the water, like, turns when you flush the toilet. Does it go, like, in the counter? I can't. Wh- which way does it go here? Does it go clockwise here or counterclockwise here? For the listener, whatever, whatever, whatever direction it goes in the, in the U.S., it goes in the opposite direction in the southern hemisphere. Okay? And so, anyway, so they, they go to the embassy and they go into the bathroom and, and uh, either it's, uh, Bart or Homer asks, like, which way the water goes down. Does it go, like, in the wrong direction? And uh, the guy from the embassy says, no. We've had a special uh, a machinery installed to make it so that when you flush the toilet, the water goes in the correct American way. <laughs> and it, like they flush the toilet, and it starts like swirling around the other way. Anyway, that I just and that reminded you of the lions. That reminded me of the lions, <laughs> and it reminded me of the sort of uh, diplomacy tie-in that you sometimes get with uh, with the Simpsons. Great show. But yeah, they were yeah Detroit's so like circling the the toilet, unfortunately, circling the drain. All right, yeah. 